There you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. This United States Army Special Forces veteran is doing innovative things for individuals in the world of project management, and they're doing it at the global level. He has his priorities in the right place. He's the consummate family man, diehard American. I can't tell you how honored I am to have Scott Kinder on our show today. You're definitely going to enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. I can't tell you how honored I am to have Scott Kinder on our show today. Scott's been a friend for a while. We, we're doing some things together in business, but and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm remiss for not asking him to even be on the show. So my apologies to you, Scott, and uh, want to tell a little bit about you before we get going with your story, if that's okay. Oh, perfect, and no apologies necessary, brother, at all. Well, thank you for that. Took me off the hook, man. So, you know, Scott is the chief commercial officer for the Institute of Project Management down in Australia. And we'll get to that uh, when he gets to that part of his story. In his role, he is responsible for international business development and strategic partnerships. That's how we met. Prior to his role within the Institute, Scott served as a federal civil servant within the U.S. Department of Defense and was responsible for seven office U.S. Special Operations Command, U.S. SOCOM, programs of record and annual budgets in excess of a hundred million dollars u.s that's a lot of money scott also served in differing roles on an operational detachment alpha a team oda some of you know what that is and he'll talk more about that in the united states army special forces he is a proud ambassador of the green beret foundation and lifetime member of the special forces association Prior to the military and government service, Scott served as the vice president of operations for a global.com startup, an operations specialist at a Fortune 500 bank, and as a barista at Starbucks. Interesting. I never knew that. Um, (laughs) Scott's the author of two books, Ground Truth, Enhanced Personal and Organizational Leadership Skills, and Accountability Through Lessons Learned from Elite Military Special Forces, and The Hill. Overcoming Fear and Learning to Embrace an Elite Mindset. In his free time, Scott teaches self-defense classes and coaches soccer. Are you coaching soccer? I I do coach soccer, yes. Recently, he has had a child who is seven months old. I hear she's a pistol and putting weight on like Ah. like crazy. So thanks uh, for coming on the show, Scott. Again, sorry I didn't have you here earlier. Appreciate your service and uh, look forward to hearing your story here. Oh, John, dude, my pleasure. You know, I love everything that you do. Reagan and my daughter seven weeks old, so apologies if I'm sleep-deprived. Um, I'm less sleep-deprived than my wife. It's all good. She is putting on weight. She's a very chill little baby, but after doing this last time, you know, my oldest, my two sons are 15 and 11, so there's a, a bit of an age gap there, if, if, you, if everybody does the math. Well, yeah, definitely a bit of an age gap, but the cool thing is, is that she has two older brothers to protect her as she starts to get a little bit older. No, absolutely. Um, and imparting that kind of, you know, uh, mindset to my, my teenagers, you know, my teenager especially was awesome because you could see that when he held her for the first time, you know, the, the true kind of, um, weight of it all that, you know, for the rest of her life, he would be almost an adult, you know, especially if she came in the toddlerhood and whatever, and he'd be responsible for helping, you know, mom and I look out for her. So, uh, it's a pretty cool thing to watch. That's real cool, man. Congratulations to your wife and you, and uh, looking forward to hearing more about Reagan as she gets older. Um, so, uh, thanks. T- tell us about the Kinder household. You know how you grew up, where you grew up, who were your mentors, who did you look up to, did you have any heroes? What was that all about, Scott? Uh, yeah. So I, I grew up. Um, I grew up in the South mostly. 
um, went to school in Chicago, which I, I'm a huge diehard Cubs fan um, and, and lifetime Cubs fan. So, uh, I, but um, I'll get to that in a minute. Congra- but um, I grew up in the South. My, uh, yeah, my, uh, my my role models were. I mean, literally, um, this sounds pretty, you know, kind of vanilla and, and classic. But my role models are my older brother and my my father. My father mostly. Um, he was a, a Vietnam vet and a. Uh, uh, he worked for the government and he did a lot, but he was just a true epitome of family and respect and just honesty and integrity. He, he had so many hard knocks in his adult professional life after leaving the government and he just continuously got up, dusted himself off, you know, recovered, took care of the, you know, the wife and kids and, and everything else. And, and we never felt the pain of anything that he was going through, um, even through his medical troubles or whatever. My older brother ended up going to West Point. We graduated West Point in 89 and served as a, uh, an officer in 24th uh, Mechanized Infantry in the first Gulf War. So, you know, as I was in high school looking at that, that was, um, that was pretty moving to me as well. So I guess between my dad and my brother, I always felt called to serve. And I, I mean, I was a total punk in high school, you know. I mean, I was a, I was a black belt in martial arts, you know, by the time I was 15 because of my dad's influence and, and work ethic. Um, I played soccer, I played baseball, I played football. I was a typical punk with an ego that thought, you know, um, an ego to match. So I, I have to say I, I have moved out of my my punk ways as an adult. I feel like I'm, I'm less of a punk now. But looking back, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. Well, you know, thanks for pointing that out. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that can relate to that. Did you go, you know, you know, you said your dad was a Vietnam veteran. Obviously, that had an impact on you. But did you go to college after high school or did you go right into the military? No, no, I went to college. Um, I went to college, bounced around, played soccer, did a bunch of stuff, um, walked out, you know, working for Morgan Stanley um, with a with a finance degree. Working for Morgan Stanley was awesome. I um I loved it. I was spending time in in both New York and Chicago. It was amazing. But then my older brother, again, you know, he was out. He'd gone to he had left the military, gone to business school, and he had an idea for a internet startup. And he called me one day and said, "Hey, do you want to move to New York and and run some operations? You're pretty good at this detail stuff." And so I said, sure. And then, um, moved to New York full time and then moved to Caribbean where we started up our company, you know, fully 18 months to the Caribbean. And then as we sold the company to Australia, I ended up living in Australia, um, and, and sold the company interfacing with the government agencies over here and stuff like that. So, um, it was really, I think, you know, kind of my, my project manager travels, not to put the cart in front of the horse, but it started way back then, you know, in my, in my early twenties, you know, being entrusted by, my older brother to run international operations and put together teams and see the failure of teams. You know, I didn't know anything about the military at that point, but um, it wasn't until I was 25, you know, 25, 26 and nine 11 kicked off that, that I really found the calling. You know, I was, I was looking at something as, as a company sold and found the 18 x-ray program and um, came straight off the streets, you know, with the degree and everything else. And it got approved to go into the uh, special forces baby program. It was one of the earliest, uh, earlier guys to go through the program. And back when the program started, you know, you had to have life experience and, and the ability to learn a language and a degree and be over 21 and do all this stuff. And so, um, so that was interesting. I ended up flying from Australia to Chicago to go to MEPS and try out for the program and take all the tests and the ASVAB and everything else. I, I actually, I fell asleep on the ASVAB because I was jet lagged and the recruiter had to wake me up. So, um, that was pretty You're funny. Probably but, um, with this guy, you know? Yeah, and they thought I was a joke, right? They're like, when I called them, they said, you're, you're going to fly in from Australia to take the ASVAB and stuff? I'm like, yeah, you know, we're selling the company. I'm looking for a change. You know, I want to be a Green Beret. And, and that, every time I said that, somebody would giggle at me. And, um, you know, uh, as you know, John, I'm not a guy that does anything half-assed. You know, if, if I'm in, I'm, I'm all in. So, you know, when I started martial arts when I was eight years old, uh, I looked around and said, you know, these white, yellow, and orange and green belts are pretty cool, but... I want a black belt. You know, when I, when I started playing soccer and playing baseball, it was always with the design to go pro, you know, um, and do whatever. So I don't do anything kind of halfway. I commit. And so I said, yeah, I'm going to walk off the street. So all the naysayers kind of helped push me into it. So, you know, I got back to Australia with the contract fresh in hand and said, you know, to my then girlfriend, now wife and mother of my children, you know, Hey, I've got a new job offer, you know, it's in the military. I'm joining the army. You know, I'm going to be a green beret. She didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that was to be honest either. End of the conversation. I ended up saying, 
I'd love it if you came with me, you know, and she said, well, come with you as a girlfriend or come with you as a wife. And I'm like, oh, we can get, we can get married. And so that was uh, the romantic way I proposed. And, uh, and <laughs> so after about, th- after about 30 seconds of, of delay, she said, okay, cool. I'm going to call my mom. And I'm like, all right, awesome. And we got married a couple of days later and uh, had a big party in Australia, moved to the States. And two weeks later, I was in basic training. Where'd you go to basic at Benning? Ah, Benning, yeah, Hell's Kitchen, Benning, Sand Hills, Benning. So it was, uh, it was, it was fun. It was kind of a culture shock as well because you know, again, talking about the snickering and the laughing, um, the drill sergeants in our infantry training, you know, brigade would call other drill sergeants over just to the twelve X-rays, and they would take turns smoking us and laughing at us and telling us, "You, I went to selection. If you think I couldn't make it as a staff sergeant, you don't know anything about the army." And, and, you know, but the one thing that they just kept beating into me and, you know, John, as you know, I, I don't have any negativity towards a conventional army at all. Like if you serve, you serve your uniform. So I'm not in any way an elitist. But the, the one thing that they beat into me was that I did not want to be a private or a private first class underneath people like them in the 82nd as a light instrument or the 101st or wherever they're going to send me, you know, needs of the army if I failed out. So um, they're um, – they're constant berating me and constant, you know, uh, smoking and everything else just, you know, forged iron and made it harder. Right. I mean, so it just made me more intently laser focused to get through the crucible, the Q course and to get onto an ODA. And, and that's exactly what I ended up doing. That's amazing. You know, where we get our motivation from, but you know what, when you are laser focused like that and you have, you have a plan in your own mind, you know, there's nothing going to come. And I do know you, you're right. You know, you don't do things half ass and that's why you've had amazing success. So you got to an ODA, and what year was that? Uh, so I got to an ODA in early 04. Um, so late 03, early 04, you know, transitioning over moves, everything else. So, you know, going to fifth group at that timeline, you know, is and going to, you know, I, I literally went to Charlie Company 3rd Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group, which is where, you know, um, the, the horse soldier guys came from. So, you know, the guys in the movie, um, Mark Nooch and Bob Pennington and, and all those guys were walking around the hallways of the battalion and the company. And, and I'm going, you know, I, I knew that they were big deals. Um, and I knew that, you know, they were, they had done things that I probably would never get the chance to do at a time and, you know, of, of such amazing importance for our country. Um, but they were, they, <laughs> they couldn't care less. They were just humble, awesome guys. And, and I'm proud to call many of them friends to this day. Um, you know, they, they taught me that, you know, being a, a soft guy or, you know, I, I don't really like the term operator, but, you know, being a, being a green beret is truly about being that quiet professional. It's just standing up when, when necessary, doing the right thing. And then, you know, going back to your life and doing whatever. And, you know, Steve Bly and Bob Pennington and, and the guys, I mean, Steve is my first team sergeant and he was one of the horse soldiers. And, you know, there, there are no better examples of either Americans or quiet professionals or just, you know, I mean, amazing human beings, um, that, that I can, I can reference. And so they, they kind of, you know, I walked into the team room day one and, you know, was calling everybody sergeant, you know, hey, master sergeant. And they would just giggle at me and laugh. I'm like, hey, man, it's Steve, you know, and I'm like, okay, master sergeant. He's like, no, don't call me that. Call me Steve. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, so it was, it was very embarrassing because I didn't know anything. You know, I knew what I knew from the Q course. And that's exactly what I told them. You know, I don't know anything about the Army. I don't know. And in fact, when I, when I was going through basic training, they had to cut two weeks out of our basic training class because Department of the Army miscalculated the, the dates to get us to airborne training, to get us to the, what they call SOPC back then, which was special operations preparation and conditioning to prepare you for selection. So um, so two weeks they cut out of infantry basic training or drill and ceremony. So I can honestly say I literally never learned how to march in the military. Um, it was it was a funny experience from from the get go. Um, and so getting to the fifth group, you know, it was eye opening. And you know, I didn't know how to put on Molly gear. I didn't know how to do anything. So you know, put because we use all the Vietnam era, you know, um, stuff in uh in the key course. But um, it was or back then we did at least. But it was uh it was eye opening, man. And it was a learning curve and a half. But you know, and a lot of my friends ended up going to B teams or ended up being kicked around a couple of different ODAs or whatever. But I went to, you know, 594, which is now 5334, and, um, and found a home and stayed there my, my whole time until I left and went to be, you know, work for the government. Well, that's pretty interesting. You know, a lot of people don't really realize that, you know, even the face of war and combat has changed because 
I, I, isn't it more special operations now than it ever used to be? Most of the missions now, uh, I mean, there con- are conventional there. forces are certainly used, but not like they had been. Is that is that true? I, I would say that's that's fairly true. I mean, you know, so conventional is morphing as well because you know there are no you know large battles when you deal with insurgencies like in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, it's hard to you know do patrolling and, and route out the enemy when the enemy looks like everybody else. It's hard to find them, right? And and you know the um, the lessons that we had learned from Vietnam weren't really applicable from a jungle warfare scenario to you know the streets of Iraq and, and the mountains of Afghanistan. So I mean. I think the conventional army is is really trying to morph itself as well. I mean, air superiority is always a great thing. You know, firepower, close air support, you know, artillery, all those sides of conventional military stay pretty pretty tried and true. But I think, you know, the infantry tried to reinvent themselves quite a bit. And, you know, the, I mean, elements, you know, again, back to soft, but elements like Rangers have really reinvented themselves a couple of times and become some of the most premier fighting forces in the world, you know. Um, and, and every organization goes through that, you know. A special forces group goes through change, just like everything else. And that's part of the... Uh, the build of a Green Beret is being adaptable and, uh, and understanding the necessity for change, fighting it when you don't think it's necessary. But once your your command element tells you that it is, you know, and you come on board through MDMP and everything else and the military decision-making process, it's all that cohesive unity towards a common goal. And that's that's one of the big takeaways that I took, you know. Um, we fought on my ODA like cats and dogs about everything. I mean, you, you put 12 type A guys in their room, right, all the time, and you live together, shower together, eat together, work out together, deploy together, everything. And we we were brothers, but we fought like cats and dogs. But that conflict was amazing because everybody's viewpoint was equal, and it took a hell of a leader, my, my team leader Pete took a, and, and team sergeants, you know, it took a hell of a leadership team to really corral that energy and push it towards, you know, the, the destructive force that we could be, destructive in a positive way. And it, it taught me a lot. And, and you know, I still I, I write Pete on LinkedIn and, and you know in emails and to this day, years later and just tell him, you know, man, you so so of all my role models as an adult, um, the leadership elements of fifth group that that I came under or or the ones that I look to now for guidance. I mean, you know, um, I've got a really close personal friend, Adam, who I, I told you about. We didn't really work well. To, we didn't really work together in fifth group too much because he was a, a company grade officer and I was an enlisted guy who shied away from company grade officers who they weren't near my team. But um, now in the backside, you know, Adam is a, a true quiet professional. We work very well together. We uh, we do a lot of stuff together, and you know, it's a synergy of effort and a synergy that brotherhood, if you will. You know, I mean, it, it, you, you and I, John, share no experiences, but we sat down in Florida and had lunch. You know, it was like it was like I was talking to a brother as well. And in that instant chemistry of a type A person who is solely focused on doing what they believe is right and helping others, it's palpable. And, you know, when you surround yourself by people like that, it's um, you can do no wrong because, you know, you're going to do good. There's going to be some trials and tribulations, but you're going to you're going to succeed at the end of the day. Well, you know what? You're right about that, Scott. It's good viewpoint and perception about it. You know. One thing, you know, you have all these guys, different backgrounds, different ways of doing things. and But one thing probably is for certain, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you guys know what you were fighting for when you were there? Oh, always. I mean, you know, there was, there was never any, you know, type of Hollywood drama. There was never any type of, you know, so... It's, it's really weird, and, and people, I live in Australia now, so people always ask me all the time, you know, because there's, there's a very large military presence in Australia, but it's, it's markedly different than the military presence in the States. So people always go, you know, when, um, when I coach a kid's soccer team, and then my wife, you know, or, or I end up telling one of the parents that, you know, I was a, a combat veteran, or, you know, oh, did you ever go to Iraq or Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, um, did you ever do this? Yes, you know, and they look at you like you're scarred, and all of a sudden, you know, oh, this guy's going to, you know, he's going to beat my kid or something. Or And so how was it? You know, were you living in a, in a, was it horrible? And I'm like, you know, combat's not fun. Being away from your family's not fun. But when you're, you know, again, united with a bunch of guys who can do good stuff and you're serving your country and you're, you have a purpose, you know, and we were purposeful in what we did, you know, so I'm, I have angst with, you know, people that had to do presence patrols and stuff like that just to draw on ambushes and get shot at and and become the bait but when when you're the hammer not the bait you know it's a pretty good feeling so you know there was never any type of you know drama from anyone on my team that i ever picked up on you know obviously everybody has good days and bads you know you miss 
Christmas or you miss your kid's birthday again, or, you know, your, your wife got promoted at work and you have to have somebody back home send flowers to her or something. That's hard stuff to deal with, but there was never any type of the Hollywood, you know, what am I doing here that, that I experienced? Um, that stuff wasn't and literally, I never experienced that in, in fifth group with anybody that I, I knew or met there. You know, speaking of experiences, what was your most memorable experience? You know, and you talked about the enemy, and we can get to Iraq and Afghanistan here in a second, but good or bad, what was your most memorable experience from your combat experiences? So a couple of weeks before coming home from one of the chips, we, we had a team, you know, something bad happened to a fellow team and Eamon Taha, a guy that I had gone through, you know, basic training and the Q course and everything else, but, um, and a fellow fifth group, you know, legionnaire and brother, um, Eamon was killed a couple of weeks before we were due to rotate home. Um, and, and I just remember, you know, I had talked to him and seen him, you know, just do mutual travels in and around the country, um, just a couple of weeks before. And he had just had a baby girl and whatever else. So walking around the team room and we, in the team house that we had in Iraq at the time. And I, I kind of, I, I mean, I, I, I knew that Aiden was out and about in those other teams and we knew that a team got into some trouble and, you know, had a KIA. You know, I kept thinking to myself, like, man, you know, um, and it was actually pretty shitty because Pete and Brian, my team leader and team sergeant, they found out that it was Eamon's team and they found out that it was Eamon and they both knew that he was one of my best friends and they had to come tell me that, you know, Eamon had been killed. So that was, um, it's not anything that I did that ever bothers me. It's good dudes being lost for something, for something silly, you know, being literally zigging instead of zagging or whatever, you know, I mean, um, we had lost Matt Kimmel the same trip, you know, and whatever. So losing a couple of good guys, you know, who had become chip of, you know, you walk into danger. If you volunteer for the military and you volunteer for airborne and you volunteer for special operations and you go through two years, you know, roughly of the Q course or a year and a half, whatever it is to get there to your team. And then you go through the team training deployment. You, you know what you're in for. So, you know, there is no kind of like, Oh, wow. You know, I didn't know I was in for this. You know, we didn't sign up just for. And no offense to those who did, but we didn't sign up just for the GI Bill or pay for university or whatever. We signed up to go to war and fight. So, you know, there's a cost with going to war and fighting. And I think the biggest cost that we paid is, you know, good dudes that didn't get to come back home. So, so that's what bothers me is, you know, friends that didn't need to come back home who, when you know their wives and kids and everything else, and that's, that's what hurts, you know, because again, it's, it's a cost of freedom, but you know, we, we can never forget that cost and, and then we got to keep it first and foremost in our minds. Well, you know, sorry for, you know, your personal losses, you know, uh, I can't imagine how that, you know, how that feels, especially when you've been close to those guys like that, you know. You talked about the enemy. You know, what was the difference without giving away anything operational? You know, what, what were you dealing with in Iraq and what were you dealing with in, in Afghanistan? You know, were you guys doing kind of the same thing or different enemies? What was going on? No, so so I went to my Afghanistan time was as a federal civilian. So I stood up the, um, or I helped stand up. I didn't, I certainly didn't do it on my own, but um, the special activity section of the Marine Special Operations Regiment. So I was a GS 13 and I, I worked the special activities piece at the, it's now the Marine Raider um, Regiment or something, but back then it was a Marine Special Operations Regiment. Um, so, you know, I went to Afghanistan is a SOTA Special Operations Task Force level guy overseeing a lot of stuff. So, so my boots on the ground stuff were more, you know, guys feeling sorry for me and throwing me in the back of the truck and, you know, doing whatever and let me get out and play a little bit versus, you know, strapping up and going out and engaging the enemy one on one. Um, so that, and, and I was trying to go out and engage the enemy one on one, but you know, uh, when they're like, you know, don't let anything happen to this guy because he's a civil servant, not a, uh, not a team guy anymore. It was a bit of a challenge. And I, I mean, so it was a, it was a different perspective, but you know, we did a lot of DA type missions in, in Iraq, which, you know, direct action raids and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just. In Afghanistan, we had morphed into village stability operations and, you know, trying to win the hearts and minds and trying to get into whatever. There's still quite a bit of DA stuff going on, but it was, it was a totally different type of feeling in a different war, if you will. Um, it, it's kind of hard to compare them on a, on a 30 minutes to an hour podcast, right? Yeah. You know, so, so you, so you were active, well, you were active in, a, in one of the ODAs in Iraq. Then you got out and became a civil servant. And then went back to Afghanistan. That's how it went down. Yes. Okay. So you know. So so. D- how long was your transition from active duty into 
into the civil service? Was it quick, or did you come back to Australia or the states? How'd that go down? Uh, it was it was it was quick. We moved from Port Campbell back east, and you know did some job training and did whatever. And then uh, you know, like I said, just transitioned. It was it was a planned transition into a new role. Um, and, and I fought. I, man, I fought mentally to stay on the ODA. You know, my again nine four. My team. You know, we were kind of. Pete was going to business school. Um, a couple guys were going to the warrant course. You know, the team sergeant was retiring, and we're getting a new team sergeant, who's one of my best, you know, a really good friend of mine to this day. But the, the team was imploding and going elsewhere. And simultaneously, when I left this group, they were standing up, you know, fourth battalions, and and you know, looking to send guys over to fourth battalion. And I had a couple of key schools that they were really looking for in fourth battalion. And so I didn't want to leave third battalion, where which is my home, to go start up a new battalion and do whatever. And it was a bit immature and selfish of me back then you know to look at it that way and i i kind of you know always look at myself in the mirror and go what if you would have stayed in fifth group you know and, and i heavily counsel guys like never to to kind of you know look retroactively like that because you know everybody that wants okay i'm gonna go one more deployment and you know that ends up being their last because they get hurt or killed and you know there's just always you know i always tell people don't go chasing gunfights man like just let life happen, you know, and figure it out. So, so it was a planned transition. You know, I had the job offer and we picked up the house in, in Tennessee and moved to North Carolina and, and started that whole thing up. So it was a matter of months, you know, just with transition to move and whatever. There was no pack to Australia or whatever. In fact, that was the, um, so when I had proposed to my wife and, you know, whatever it was, the original conversation was, you know, all right. So it's a four year contract, babe. And then I'll be, I'll be back, you know, we'll be back in Australia. And then that turned into, well, if you sign up for this, you get a signing bonus. So, of course, I signed up for that. And then there was a reenlistment. And then there was, you know, the time at Marsoc. And, you know, and, and I was still, you know, deploying and running programs and doing whatever. So I was having a blast. But it had been, you know, <laughs> over a decade. And she looks at me one day when I get home. And, you know, there's my favorite cigar and a, a bottle of wine. And, you know, we weren't at the point of divorce or marital problems or anything, you know. But my um my oldest son was about to turn 10 and you know and she said look you know we've always laughed that since we've been married you've been gone like 80 percent of our marriage you know but that's 80 percent of aiden my oldest son's life as well and you know you've missed eight of his 10 years and you know we were a good tight family when you're home and everything else but you know we blinked and this time has passed and we're gonna blink in another 10 years have passed your dad being a role model to you is that what you want? Do you want to be the dad that saw his son for, you know, four of his 20 years and you're not even going to really know him all that well? And I said, no. Um, and it was a slap in the face in a, in a positive way. And it was an awesome conversation that everybody always attaches drama to it or whatever. But, um, I looked at her, I said, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I went to work the next day and called my boss and said, Hey, I'm not putting in notice or anything, but I am going to be leaving soon as soon as I figure out my egress plan. And, and he goes, he goes, that's BS, Scott. What are you going to be doing? I said, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm going to, we're going back to Australia though. I'm going to be more in touch with my family. I'm going to do things, you know, um, and we didn't think that we would have, we thought we were done with two kids back then. So, you know, we didn't think that there was a third kid on the horizon, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a family guy. I'm going to do my thing. And so literally a couple months later, <laughs> we had a plan. Um, I started a, uh, a consulting company, um, was writing a lot and, and not anything biographical, or whatever, just because, you know, that's not me, but um, you know, kind of some of the lessons that I learned and, you know, I picked up a couple of clients to, uh, some of my older brother's friends and just my contacts and whatever. And then, um, we moved to Australia, we moved to Sydney. So, um, that was, a it was a huge move and it taught me a lot of lessons because the consulting business, I had a foot in the U S and a foot in Australia and then I ended up, because of some commitments to my older brother, putting most of my time back in the U.S. And so I, I kept traveling back to the U.S. and being gone even more than I was when I was a team guy. So I finally looked at everybody and said, you know, this this isn't working. And I refocused everything into Australia. But the business lessons that I learned, you know, John, the stuff that you and I were just talking about right before the, the podcast started – you know, putting capital into things and doing business development and trying to find new areas and develop new, you know, channels and everything else. Those are all just lessons that were slapping me in the face on a daily basis. Um, so well, so I learned quite a bit well, that's moving I, back. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, that some of the things you obviously learned in your experiences in the military impacted you greatly in your decision making. And you obviously had your priorities set straight because... You know, to decide between, you know, carrying on a career that you absolutely loved or raising your family, 
it didn't seem like you had to think about it that long. And, and, and that's, that's a good thing. You know, you, you did what you had to do and now you're doing some great things too. Tell us about, you know, the Institute of Project Management. Tell us about that. So, so I ran into the co-founders here in Australia. They, um, they originally were looking for a consultant um, because they had just landed the city of Sydney and the, the project manager officer of the city of Sydney as a client. And they want somebody with um, some high-level government bureaucratic, you know, pro- program and project management experience. Um, and, and I had been certified as a project manager through what is now a competing organization. Um, so I had certifications and I had project management knowledge. And, and I think that, you know, for any veteran, and I've always said this, even as a consultant, project management and, and military veterans go, go hand, hand in glove. It, it's just a perfect, perfect fit for, for what we've done. Um, so anyway, I sat down with the, uh, the two co-founders, Ian and Paul, and Ian's a retired Australian Defense Force officer, and, and Paul's a, an economist. But, um, you know, it, it, I sat down and we talked, and I really liked their approach. And, you know, I was like, all right, you know, yeah, I'll come on as a consultant and go talk to the city of Sydney and whatever for you. And, and I was literally a consultant for them for two weeks. Um, I, I, I hit the road with them for two weeks, one the city of Sydney and one for a, um, some training that we were doing for the uh, – Saudi Arabian cultural mission here in Australia. Um, and so I came back from that. And after seeing the products that they had, I said, guys, why aren't you all over the U S this stuff beats the hell out of anything that I've seen. And I'm pretty well traveled in the field. And, and the long story short was the Institute is a, um, what, what in Australia they call a registered training organization or, or dot edu. So we can do academic qualifications and, and programs as well. Um, but on the certification side, they were always kind of terrified of the U.S. because our competitor has kind of a, a monopolistic lock on it. You know, um, project management in the U.S. is almost, you know, um, historically just synonymous with the PMP, the project manager professional. And I was a PMP, um, but I also knew the flaws in, in the PMP um, kind of system, if you will, because looking at it and, and not being totally enamored with it, um, I had kind of a, a, a unique view on it as well. And so I said, look, you know, um, I want to bring you guys into the States and elsewhere. And so what ended up happening was they said, all right, you know, how do we do it? And so we started doing it. I said, you know, we do it just like that. Speaking of stuff that the army taught me, um, we, we create an insurgency, you know, we, we start winning key battlegrounds and we create the ambassadors and we create the victory. So I basically took all the stuff that I, I learned from Robin Sage and, you know, the exercise in the key course and how to conduct unconventional warfare and just applied it to business development. And, um, and so, you know, create partnerships, you know, create networks and create everything else. So, so John, you know, we landed Green Zone Hero as a partner, the Green Beret Foundation, Special Forces Association, Beyond Soft as a partner, the higher group, you know, we've got the paradigm switch, you know, we've got mentors from military, we've got a bunch of key military players and partners that, that we've been developing. And we're in talks with a lot of, of big players right now as well. It is. Um, that you know yeah, that's so. that's the perfect scenario and how to do that and you know just real quick here you know and as a matter of fact I have my project management certification through the Institute of Project Management down in Australia and and it, it was grueling and uh, <laughs> you know thank you for that you know I I didn't even realize that the things that I had learned in the military and in my professional career could actually help me to get those certifications I knew nothing about it Scott until we met. And because of our strategic partnership, you were able to enhance my career. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to interject there, but that's that's kind of how no, I got my certification. But which- that's what, yeah, that's what we're doing. So we're taking what, you know, has been convoluted and, and horrific as, as far as experiences and, and expensive. And, you know, so one thing that we've done, if, if you create a profile on, on our site, we have a free 30-hour training site uh, called Open. And it's open.institute.pm, and you can create a free profile and, and log in there. Um, but when you create your profile, if you there's a drop-down menu that says, "Are you a veteran?" And if you say yes, um, it goes, you know, which branch and you know which country because we're we're a global organization. So if you say, "I'm a I'm a U.S. Army veteran and I got out as an O3 or an E7 or whatever," um, it automatically calculates which of our four levels of certifications that you're already eligible for on the experience base because we took a few months and baselined all the military experiences across branches and said this is what the experience piece is. So once you conduct or complete either university, MBA, whatever boot camp training, and you have PM training or the training for free on our site, you know, on our open site, you couple that with your experience, you know, military and civilian alike. And then we do a 45 minute assessment 
um, all online and recorded to make sure that you have the skills to be certified. And then at the completion of that, you're certified for life in line with your background and, and what your skills and capabilities are. So we tried to, you know, put it at a price point, which is attractive and simultaneously give back to our community partners. So for those of you listening to this podcast, if you want a certification and you want to give back to, to John and green zone hero, use the code green zone hero on the big coupon code box. When, when you're applying for certifications and you give money back to every transaction back to John and you get 10% off of the, uh, of your certification. So you get 10% off and you give money back to John as well. Um, so that's how we're spreading the word and we're creating revenue streams. And by the way, we, we don't get anything other than a certification cost. We don't ask John, there's no, you know, subscription or partnership pricing or whatever. So when we, get, when we partner with organizations, it's purely out of a desire to give back. So we want to give people money off and we want to give money back to the organizations that support us. But, um, we're beyond excited to have Green Zone and, and all of our other partners as partners. Well, you know what? Truthfully, like you just said a few things here, Scott, you, you've demystified and, and de, and de, complicated or uncomplicated the process and made it virtually seamless so you're actually you know when you can put boots on the ground people with experience with certifications not only you're going to enhance the workforce but you're going to enhance their lives which could come back in in income so you know it is a great program you guys are on to something uh that i wish i had found out about years earlier but but i and it's never too late and i know that the future looks bright for the institute of project management um yeah very very thrilled to yeah very thrilled to be with you guys yeah but that's that's the absolute best feeling is that you know not only am i helping veterans get certified and you know so we have we spent 15 months and the va is about the sorry the va has certified all of our programs we're we're testing and making sure that everything is is set up and ready to go before we officially launch the the va notification but we're making it you know where VA, you know, uh, veterans of VA educational benefits are 100% reimbursed for our certifications. So the VA has looked at our stuff for over a year and said, yeah, we want to do that. And the best feeling in the world comes from not only helping veterans, but because we had that skills component in the, in the project management certification language, um, every other certification provider only tests knowledge and experience. We test knowledge and experience, but we also test skills, which means that when we send a, a certificate holder from us to an organization, they know that they're getting somebody that doesn't just understand the theory of project management because they passed some four-hour test, that they've actually done project management and can employ project management. So, so when we certify somebody, organizations are finding our certifications even more beneficial because of that skills piece. Um, and, and we're also not locked into any one rigid philosophy. We take the best practice from across industry, across the military and civilian, across academic and non-academic, you know, whatever works, agile, waterfall, Prince 2, lean, anything that we can get in there, we make it a best practice approach so that organizations, because it's not theoretical, you know, um, project management has some theory and stuff to it, but it's, it's practicality. And organizations have taken what is, practical and relevant and made it impractical and theor theoretical and you know i don't need to be able to tell you the three different types of meetings and 48 different math problems i need to successfully complete complete the projects that you tell me to do and we need to make sure organizations are doing the right projects the right way well exactly and you know what you guys have managed to do you've managed to create innovation in basically what i'd say archaic models um and because of that innovation, not only are you going to, you know, you always be on the leading edge. I know, Scott, that's what you guys are, and you especially, you're always trying to look for ways to make things better than they already are. And that, that's, an important, that's an important trait for a company to have. And that's why, you know, when you explained this to me a year and a half, two years ago, that's why we were like, holy cow, I didn't realize that we could be part of something that big. And so you guys are definitely putting a dent in the project management world and and i and it's it's thrilling to be to watch it and to be part of it and to see you guys build this thing um yeah oh, so thanks, future looks bright man so let me ask you this what is what does freedom mean to you because what does it mean to you and do you think everybody in america has freedom um you know it's a it's a complicated answer, right? So freedom means everything to me. I mean, you know, um, if I didn't, if I didn't have the opportunities that I've had, you know, I mean, 
leaving the South to go to university in Chicago and you know, getting the job opportunities in Chicago and having the freedom to just say, ah, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go do that and whatever, you know, and, and just seeing and being able to do the things that, that I've done. Freedom means everything to me. And living overseas right now, and I'm not going to turn this into a political conversation because I don't, I don't want to, you know, living overseas right now, it's, it's really painful to watch the international perception of what's going on in America. And it really, if you watch the nightly news in Australia, um, as an American, it's painful. Um, it, it's painful for to be a patriot and to see the divisiveness and to see the, for lack of a better word, the hate on, on both sides of, of the street, right? I mean, this isn't, you know, us versus them or whatever. And, and I can't stand looking at that because, you know, it looks like a civil war or something worse is brewing. And, and it pains me in my soul um, because, you know, I, I fought in, in, in all the cliches. I fought and bled and served my country and whatever. The, the, everybody in the U.S. is not living the most freedom that they can because they're constrained by both ideology and political correctness and by, you know, just self-imposed constraints. And, you know, and so one of the things I mentioned Adam earlier, Adam lives in, in Jackson, Mississippi. And one of the things that we're trying to do with the city of Jackson is to revitalize and put our project management search into high schools, um, not for project managers, but for pro we certify project team members as well. And then create internships and organizations throughout Jackson because the two pathways for, you know, normal high schoolers, university and military, universities are expensive and convoluted and, and crazy right now. And the military, we've been at war for longer in our history. So nobody wants to join the military and there's, there's no other real pathway to give them a career option. So, you know, partnering with Adam and seeing some of these things. And, um, one of the things, you, you know, Ashley Horner, John from the higher group, um, and if her ears are burning, um, you know, Ashley and I are about as different, people as, as you can get but i i love what she's doing i love her approach to everything because as, as different as we are she's doing everything in her power to remove the divide between elements in our society and to remove walls and self-imposed constraints and whatever and and you and ashley are working on stuff and and she's trying to remove stigmas and trying to remove this stuff so so i i love being a part freedom to me means being able to try and do the right thing in the right way to benefit people. I mean, you know, and I know that a lot of people will say that, you know, well, I'm a, a staunch right winger, staunch left winger or whatever. So I'm trying to help people as, oh, all right, you know, but I mean, when you, when you truly take a look back and think, you know, the three levels of operations, right? Tactical, operational, and strategic. If you take a look out of your tactical, you know, what's happening in your daily, you know, two meters away from you and look at things from that 50,000 viewpoint, you know, strategic level viewpoint and go, how do I make the best impact? Um, that's freedom because, you know, I have the freedom to do the things, you know, um, but I also think that, you know, people mistake freedom for the ability to say and do whatever they want without repercussions. Um, and that's not the which, case as well. If I get on a radio show and say something stupid, people are going to let me know about it, you yeah, know, and, which, and I'm sure people will hear it too. No, and you're right. You know, freedom doesn't mean you can do an act and do all these crazy things either, but you're right. You know, you guys are, innovators you're looking at better ways to do things and you mentioned ashley who is i think her tagline is bringing back the humans and then we're trying yep. to we're trying to honor wisdom and honor freedom and we're we're also talking about doing things to diminish negative stereotypes which leads to these hatreds and and doing things without labeling people so you know we're on a good yep. flight path uh and yeah you know what though scott it pains me too and i'm in america it is absolutely, like you say, without taking it to political, it's ridiculous some of the things that we're witnessing right now. I mean, absolutely well, I had, crazy. I was on the, um, the the Bob and Sherry radio show. It was one of the coolest experiences of, of last year, right? I got invited to go sit in their studio. I'm, lo I'm a longtime listener of theirs. Um, and, you know, it, for many reasons I was invited. But anyway, I, I was in their room with Bob and Sherry. And again, Sherry Lynch and I, I, I love Sherry. She's amazing. We're friends on Facebook and Instagram. You know, we talk as frequently as we can. Um, but she's very left wing. I'm moderately right wing, you know, whatever. Um, but we sat down and, and at the end of it, we talked for like, after the show, we talked for probably three and a half, four hours. Um, and, and you know, it was a, it was a non-heated, amazing conversation. And she looked at me and said, you know, this is the first time that, you know, somebody hasn't called me a snowflake or whatever, or tried to throw something out. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a, 
I'm not a Nazi. I'm not, you know, uh, a fascist or whatever because of what I believe. You know, I don't want to see kids hurt. You know, I believe in, you know, the Second Amendment, but I don't ever want to see a kid get hurt by, or anybody get hurt by a gun, you know, that isn't deserving of it, being an enemy of our country, I mean. Um, you know, so so it was an awesome conversation. And when you remove the stigmas and the labels and you actually have an open mind and a civil dialogue, it's amazing what you can do. But, you know, 50% of the country is going to hate and despise anything Trump says. The other 50% is going to hate and despise anything Obama says. And we're going to call each other names and we're going to do stuff and we're going to drive that wedge deeper and deeper. And is an American father, you know, trying to raise two American or three American kids now overseas. You know, I, they're proud Americans. You know, my my son is 11 and, and he has a, a bright soccer future. And somebody asked him the other day, are you going to play for Australia or play for America in the World Cup? And he goes, America, without even thinking about it. You know, so they are proud Americans, but I'm scared of the country they're going to inherit in 10 years. You know, um, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah, and I don't think any of us do. But you know what's interesting is that, like, you're a Cubs fan and, and I like the Pirates, right? And you and I, yep. could, we could come to fisticuffs over which team is better. And in that fight, <laughs> Always. in the fight, we tend to lose sight that we both love the sport of baseball. And that's so true. You know, we, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we spend so much time arguing uh, ideology and bull, you know, bullshit that we tend to lose sight that we're both human beings. And we are entitled, especially in America, to our, anywhere, really, for our, our opinion and, you know, but we shouldn't castigate each other for that opinion. I always say my wife doesn't like to say, you know, everybody's got an opinion. I said some just smell worse than others, you know, where that comes from. But but it's true. We should not castigate each other for the way we believe and feel. Now, obviously, there there are remnant elements out there that, you know, that I don't think any side is ever going to adhere to. But, you know, we we have amazing things to be grateful for. And, and, and you know, America is one of them. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, if we lose sight of what this, what this country is all about, then we're certainly going to leave behind a legacy for your kids. That's not going to be one that they can, that we can be proud of anyways. But you know what, man, you nailed it. You, you, you know, we have things to be grateful for. And yet, you know, instead of us, it's a whole different philosophy, right? I think right now, too many people in the world feel that, you know, they're entitled or somebody owes them something and they, they're too busy worried about what they're owed or what they're entitled to instead of just being grateful for what they have. You know, the glass isn't half empty all the time. And, you know, maybe that's what, you know, um, people always ask me, what did being a Green Beret teach you? And I said, you know, failure is not fatal unless, you know, you'll know what it is. You know, but you can fail, and if it's not fatal, just get up, dust yourself off, and move out and drop fire, you know? I mean, um, you you know that because you, you don't become a SEAL, a Marine Raider, a Green Beret, anything in the Special Operations, a Ranger, anything in the Special Operations community without failing, you know? You are going to be put in a position in training or that you cannot pass no matter what. And it's a beautiful thing when you take a type A person and you, and you teach them that, you know, you're going to fail, and it's okay. And, you know, so we learn to be grateful for, you know, I, I, some days I'm, I would just be happy to be grateful to be dry. I would be freezing my ass off, but be grateful to be dry because, you know, being cold and wet really sucks bad. (laughs) But, you know, instead of looking at it like, oh, I'm freezing, I'm freezing, I'm freezing, I would just go, at least I'm not wet, you know, and then be grateful for something. So if, if you switch your mindset just a bit, then learn to be grateful for something. It's, it's beautiful what happens on the backside, you know. Life isn't all negative. There's a lot of really cool stuff that happens as well. And if you're so busy feeling sorry for yourself and worrying about what you're missing out on, you miss out on all that. You know, that's a great point, Scott. You know, somebody, uh, what's that book, Victor Frankl, that wrote about Auschwitz? And there was this young yes. Ju- Jewish woman who was in the infirmary there, obviously on her last leg, and it was the dead of winter, you know, freezing cold, bitter cold in Poland. And she was looking at this bud on the end of this tree with no leaves. And he asked her, he said, you know, what are you looking at? He knows that she's dying. She goes, I'm looking at that bud, which hasn't opened yet, but I'm imagining it, what it's going to look like in the springtime. And I know I won't be here to see it. You know, what's that with the book, The Meaning of Life? So what you just said makes so much sense. Be grateful for the small things because you know what? If you have that mindset and you start to play that role, you can accomplish some amazing things in this life. And that that being said, what do you want the civilian population to know? You talked about the people at the soccer game, but what do you want people to know about combat veterans 
in general? What do you want them to know about combat veterans? I, I think people need to realize that, you know, um, one, you know, I, I could go every cliched phrasing out there, right? War as hell, you know, um, combat, you know, it scars you. I mean, so PTSD is real. There's a lot of very horrific things that happen in combat, but you're not broken because you've experienced those things. I mean, you know, um, and in fact, you know, if you look at a lot of the charity work that a lot of our Medal, Medal of Honor winners, you know, Leroy Petri and a lot of others do, um, they've been through some of the most horrific experiences. You don't get the Medal of Honor without it being a, a pretty horrific day or series of days. Um, and so they're on the backside. They're able to, you know, do a lot of good stuff and, and a lot of good work as well. And so I think that, you know, um, don't stigmatize people just because they've been through some experiences. I mean, you know, but also as a veteran community, we've got to get over ourselves and check our egos at the door. And you don't get a free pass in life because you're a combat veteran. You know, I mean, so so we've got to have it on both sides. But I think that, you know, um, I don't like being looked at like I'm some, you know, right wing Hitler youth Nazi guy because I've, I've served my country and gone to war. So I think if anything, I would I would ask people just to take a step back and go, um, if somebody serves their country, a combat veteran or not, but especially combat veteran, right? If somebody serves their country, that means that they have taken time out of their lives um, to to pause and and do something for a bigger bigger picture, right? A bigger entity um, serving their country, and, and whether you know it's for a university GI bill or whatever, they've still taken a step back and done that. Five years out of your life is you know an eighteen-year-old or a twenty-year-old or whatever. It's still five years out of your life. Um, and so you, you are ready for anybody that serves any veteran out there, an organization should be blessed to have a look at them because they're able to put the bigger organization, the bigger entity first, and, and they're able to serve. They're, a, they're able to serve and, and do things. Um, they might not be the right fit for the role, but I think they're worthy of a look. And now a combat veteran is somebody that, you know, is deployed in support of their country and they've taken that service to, to almost the next level. And, and, and I don't want to say that kind of pejoratively because a lot of people served in peacetime and there was no opportunity to go to combat. And that's not a, that's not a lick on anybody. You know, there's, there's a, a couple special forces only Facebook pages and there were some fights that broke out because, you know, um, some of the Green Berets were alluding to other Green Berets that if they had never fought in combat, they were a lesser Green Beret, which is absolute utter nonsense. Um, and so, you know, just there's, there's got to be dialogue and open stuff between them. But to be looked at as a combat veteran, you know, just do yourself a favor and present yourself in a positive light to begin with and realize that there is a, a semi stigma out there on you and do your best to overcome it. Don't play into the, the cliches and don't use them as an excuse to not achieve your goals. Realize they're out there and adapt and overcome. You know, you're, you're able to do that as a combat veteran. That makes sense. I kind of jumped around that a little bit. No, 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 no. That makes perfect sense, you know, and that's good advice and good wisdom there, you know. You know, so what what about the soldiers or, you know, the sailors, airmen, airwomen that might be in a dark place, you know, because of their PTS and or, you know, maybe a TBI or something like that? What kind of advice could you give to them based on your experiences, Scott? Oh man, um, I'm glad you brought up the TBIs and stuff because that's a conversation I have all the time over here as well. And you know, they say, you know, I'm like, look, if we don't realize the cost internationally coming to our countries in the next 10 years, um, survivability in the battlefield is an all time high for, in any conflict, you know, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it, it's due to the amazing, you know, medical facilities and the medical professionals that, you know, people have survived as triple and quadruple amputees, horrible traumatic brain injuries, catastrophic burns, and they're, they're still surviving and back out in society. So survivability in the battlefield is obviously an amazing, great thing, but all those TBIs, you know, over time, those TBIs are going to have an effect on our healthcare systems and on the degraded performance of those who suffer them. You know, I've got friends with, you know, 15, 20 TBIs diagnosed, you know, through different things. And, you know, in 10 years, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like because we've never had people survive the horrific level of injuries on a scale that they have in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and so it's, if you're in a dark place, just realize that there are lots of organizations out there that want to help you. I mean, um, Carl Munger and Gallant Few, you know, he does a great job of bringing veteran communities together and helping out with, with no cost. 
you know, I mean, Green Zone Hero is literally designated to finding veteran-friendly companies if you're unemployed or whatever. So go on Green Zone and look for veteran-friendly companies. You know, the Institute of Project Management is trying to get you certified and 100% reimbursed and, and will be 100% reimbursed the next couple of weeks through the VA. Um, you know, there are, that's, that's three, there's, there's three organizations out there. The higher group, which is gender and, you know, um, sexual diversity and everything else has a military hiring eco component to that as well. If you're looking for a job, um, the Green Beret Foundation, if you're an SF guy pays for, you know, rehab clinics for, for drinking or for substance abuse or whatever, there are tons of stuff out there. So the, the old school excuse of, well, I went to the VA and it didn't work, you know, all right, um, um, the VA is broken because, you know, we, we've been at war for 18 years and whatever. I'm not saying it's okay for them to be broken, but there are organizations out there. Just keep shit, email me if you need something, you know, and, and I'll do my best to put you in front of somebody. Um, you know, I mean, there are people who really, really care out there. And, and I'm not any better than anybody else because I make the offer. I mean, you know, there there are people out there that are willing to help. And with with social media and everything else, it's really not hard, you know. Um, and realize, the, the one of the last things I'll say on this topic real quick is suicide is not a way out. You know, um, I've been in some pretty dark mental places, as you know, businesses had successes and failures and whatever and trying to provide for my family and whatever and, and feeling worthless, you know, and so – um, suicide is never an option. So, I mean, there are, in fact, on Veterans Day on the 11th, I'm rucking 50 kilometers um, around where I live with some friends to raise money for suicide prevention. Um, so suicide is a selfish, cowardly way out, and it impacts everybody else around you um, way more than you being alive and, and complaining to them and, and bitching every day to us. Um, so, so, you know, there are orga- organizations that, that are out there to prevent suicides or whatever. Just reach out, reach out and talk to somebody, put the bottle down, put the gun down, whatever, reach out and talk to somebody. Um, you know, there's, you don't have as much of a stigma on you as you think, and you're not the only one that's been through that. You're not the only rape victim, combat victim, you know, person who's lost a friend. You're not, you're not the only one. There are people out there that have experienced stuff like that, and there are people that are willing to help you. I promise. That's great advice. And, and, and last but certainly not least, how do people find out uh, more about the Institute of Project Management and how can they contact you, websites and all that? And and then you mentioned somebody emailing you just in case. I don't know. Um, how can they get out more information? How can they find out more? Uh, sure. So the Institute is easy. That's um, It's institute.pm, PM, like project management. So it's a weird website, but it's just institute. Dot PM. If you want the free project manager training, it's open.institute.pm. Um, and then my email address, since I put it out there, I'll honor it, is Kinder K-I-N-D-E-R, at institute.pm. Uh, and by the way, if you're, if you're listening to this and you hate everything that I said or whatever, like, don't bother emailing because I'm probably just going to write you back. Like, thanks for the email. Then, you know, leave it. I'm not going to engage in an argument with you because, um, because you're bored. So, uh, <laughs> if you, if you need help or something, I'll help you, but I'm not going to be troll bait. So <laughs> sorry, no, no, but, uh, no, no, yeah. no it's good. I don't think we've had any of that problem yeah. yet, but if no, we, no, no. I don't, if I don't we think do just pass grow, me those you know? emails, you know, we got contacts here. So, but it, no, we're just no, saying, no, no, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. I'm just telling people I'm not going to engage if they feel, uh, if they feel the need to tell me how bad I suck, then I'm not going to, you know, um, but if you are listening and you want to catch up or you want a, a friendly advice, um, I don't see very much, both because of you know past histories and daughter and whatever new daughter seven weeks old. So if you want to, if you if you can't find anybody else and you email me and say Scott, I'm at my wit's end. Give me a phone number and I'll probably just end up calling you. I have a global U.S. number. Um, I can call people anywhere in the world for free. So um, if you really need to talk to somebody and nobody else out there. I'll make the offer that I will call you and, and talk to you and, and hear you out um, with as much free time as I have. So well, well, that's a sincere offer. I mean, well, thanks for that, Scott. You know, it's, I'm really humbled to finally, I, I'm glad I finally got you on straight out of combat radio. I just, you know, thank you for your service and, you know, tell your wife, thank you for the support that she's given you over the years. And I haven't met your kids yet, but I'm sure I will someday. And I know that you're uh from what I've heard and, and, you know, talking to you and meeting you in person a couple of years back, I know that you are the, the dad that they need to have. And, and, you know, I'm glad that you made the decision to be there for them. And I'm also glad that you're doing some innovative things 
in project management that is going to change the way business is conducted and how people live their lives and earn income. So thank you for that. But all good. Thanks, God. I look forward to our next conversation and uh, keep doing the great work you guys are doing. My best to your all your cohorts down there and uh, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Before they burn it down